Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I had the pleasure of catching up with Alana, who is a professor of Western Sydney University. We discussed her pretty interesting journey and how she ended up being a professor of multiple universities around the globe. We discussed what she believes is missing in the industry from her perspective and what skills still do need to be learned at universities and within the curriculums. Alana talks about how we should further bridge the gap between students and the industry and what we can all do to improve. If you're keen to learn more about what's happening in the education space, then this episode is for you and to keep on listening. So, Alana, I'm really excited to speak to you today. I know that Kavika put us in touch, and I know that you're also her professor because she's studying with you at your university. And I'm really intrigued by this conversation because I'd love to get your take on how students are sort of going from university into the industry, because I still believe, in my opinion, that there's this massive disconnect. And I'd really love to get your insight on how we as an industry bridge that gap. But before we dive into your amazing and wonderful advice, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your career. So can you talk our audience through where you started and what you're doing now? Okay. So originally, um, I guess I still am Canadian, but originally I was born in Canada. I went to university at the University of Calgary. I started actually off in math and computer sciences, but at the time, because I'm very, very old, there was literally only two women in the program. And most of the lectures were really large with lots of guys and The professors at the time weren't particularly very good at engaging. And so I, you know, my love for computer science and math dwindled to almost a complete miss. And I ended up switching out and going into media studies, which I loved. So it was a little bit strange and then I finished up with that and found myself going to law school. So I moved across the country, started studying in French and English, doing two law degrees at once, and found myself gravitating towards a subject at the time known as computers and the law. I know it sounds like a really corny subject, but at the time, right, because I'm old, this was kind of a fascinating subject that was rarely offered in other law schools around the world. And I found myself just thriving in this particular subject. And then I knew at that point that that's where I wanted the trajectory of my career to head. So I ended up doing a master's in computer science, more or less on the intellectual property and commercial development of technology. From there, I worked on a number of government and industry projects. And I found myself, curiously, Working at the University of Hong Kong, who took a chance on me as a, as a young person at the time and gave me an assistant lectureship where I would be studying and uh, for a PhD as well as lecturing in intellectual property and technology development as a whole. Now, curiously, my move to cybersecurity is a little bit bizarre. While I was in Hong Kong, myself and one of my colleagues who was from mainland China, we kept having slightly bizarre things happen to our computers while we were there. And this would have been in the 2001 timeframe. We kept getting really bizarre spyware installed on R2 computers. And every time we would call IT to come and help and clear it up, they would tell us we're the only two computers in the whole university network that kept having those problems. And at the time, they told us it's because we were surfing pornography while at work. (laughs) And we just started laughing because neither one of us ever (laughs) surfed pornography at work. But they couldn't explain why we had this super complex spyware on our systems at the time. And so it was really interesting because my colleague from mainland China, she thought that the spyware was being installed due to uh, cyber criminals hacking into this system and stealing all of her banking credentials. And I thought it was probably a government spying on me based on some of the projects and things that I was working on in the time. So we both had this completely different view in terms of why that spyware was only ever on our two systems. And IT had a terrible time getting rid of it. It was really quite sophisticated. So that started my journey into cybersecurity. I became obsessed with it after that. So I ended up doing a PhD. Um, I I was self-taught in terms of all the tech components, teaching myself how to program again in in new languages such as Python. And I started that journey down the cybersecurity path in 2004, officially, when I moved to Australia to do a PhD at University of New South Wales. Very fortunate in that I, I found myself thriving in Australia because cybersecurity was just taking off at that time. 2004 was an epic year, as you know, because the landscape changed that time in cybersecurity. It became commercialized and organized. Uh, we had the Tor, for example, was released in 2004. The dark net started to be a thing and being used prolifically by both hacker, hackers and criminals. And we see shortly after that the 
the move to cybercrime and, and cybersecurity, not from lone hackers, but from organized criminal syndicates. Why? Because they didn't have to have technical skills. They could purchase tools like Zeus Crimeware in order to start committing cybercrime and, and, and yielding great profit. So while I was at UNSW, I was very fortunate to be mentored by a number of uh, people, both at OSCERT um, with private investigation companies and McAfee. I had quite a lot of people help me out along the way, both with my PhD and then afterwards. So I've spent the last 12 years lecturing in cybersecurity, in law, in computer science, in business, criminology, and now I'm doing some in psychology. So I've lectured and work kind of as a goo person in that I guess my chief strength is I move between disciplines. And so I've moved to Western Sydney University and I now find myself back in the School of Computer Data and Math Sciences. So it's a little bit funny if you think I started there, ended up leaving because there weren't any women, but now I've come full, full circle and now there I am back working. Wow, that is uh, really interesting when you talk about your journey and how you sort of uh, dovetailed into different sort of aspects of it. When you talked about the Hong Kong, the pornography thing, I found that funny, just how they kept trying to blame it and fall back on that. One of the things that really stood out for me when you were speaking about your journey, when you spoke about you left, was it because you wanted to move out of doing the security side of it because you felt perhaps ostracized that there was only you and another woman in your class? Well, so this would have just been studying computer science and math in general. So cybersecurity wasn't a thing then. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it was too ostracizing. There was only two women. So like you'd get to a lecture room and there'd be two, 300 students with only two women. Uh, and the males lectured in a really specific format that I didn't find particularly friendly. And mm -hmm. so I left at that time. And so for me, it's been interesting to see now at the other side of it as a professor to see how many women still are not studying computer science and math. Even though those numbers have improved somewhat, they're still not great. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in that area. So when you said these uh, males were lecturing in a specific format, can you give an example of what that sort of looked like back then? Oh, Star Trek, you know, Star Trek jokes. Um, okay. I got my hair cut for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And he was looking for student volunteers and I went up on stage. I assumed that I was a guy the whole time. It was just... Oh my <laughs> And there was nothing That's manly. Wild. I know. And it's pretty funny if you if you were actually to get a photo of me, there's nothing about me that looks like a guy. So, what you know, just just little things like that became and, just became annoying. Yes. And I, I don't know. It just didn't attract at the time the range of intellect and cultural background in computer science then like it does now. Like I, I see now as a professor staring out into my lecture how many students come from different backgrounds and all shapes and sizes. And I think, you know, the study of computer science, math, AI, that's become like the new sexy thing to study. So we're, we're getting all of these students coming in from such diverse backgrounds prior. And so to me, that's probably what's changed the most in the last 30 years since I was at university. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you think we've actually moved the needle substantially since then? Because what you're saying, I still believe, even in my own experience, some of what you just communicated, I still believe happens today, right? And I just think that perhaps maybe people hear it a bit more because of social media and people are actively talking about it and they're trying to sort of move that needle, but it's yeah. still existent, right? Yes. So the national average for women studying in um, computer science and math is 16% in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, I've taken over, well, I've taken, that's the wrong term to use. I work with a great team at Western Sydney University. They developed a program in cybersecurity and behavior and our women numbers are 46% female to 54% male. And next year, for the first time, our online intake is 100% female. Wow. So it can be done, but it requires you to do things differently. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's actually the thing I'm most proud of in my career is the numbers we've been able to grow um, in the two years that I've been at Western with women in cybersecurity and industry screaming for more diversification of people coming into cybersecurity, um, both from cultural backgrounds and prior studies, as well as they really want more females in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So in your experience, are you noticing more of an increase or decrease in students undertaking technology degrees, but in particular, the cyber side of it? Um, no, there's. it's just the opposite. There's a hot demand for it at the moment, um, both with domestic and international numbers coming through our programs. Those are the areas that are that are growing on mass, I'd have to say, specifically from um, our international students. But, you know, the way that we've been able to grow the program with more females involved with cybersecurity behavior has been has been a really interesting journey. And so it, it leads us to believe that maybe when you combine degrees and you make them more interdisciplinary, 
with subjects that have typically attracted more females. And when you combine those two things, it seems to attract a different kind of student altogether um, to study in the field. So what do you believe we can do as a community from your perspective to better promote security as a career? And I ask this because when I was in high school, for example, I remember filling out this piece of paper and I got to the end of it and all the I went to an all girls school and all the other girls wanted to be veterinarians and nurses and doctors. And I actually didn't want to do any of the things because I was like, oh, I don't I don't want to work in health. I don't uh, want to work with my hands. So I didn't want to do a trade or become a hairdresser or anything like that. And IT was kind of listed. But then my perception of IT back then was like the guy in school that would come around to like help you with your laptop. And that sort of didn't really appeal to me. So I kind of think even at a school level, they sort of need to be positioning it in a way where it's, that's not the whole industry as, oh, I just go and do help desk stuff. That's not really what it's actually like in reality, but there's still this perception in the industry that that's what IT is about. Yeah. So I think there's, we're moving in the right direction in some ways. I mean, I can just speak in the last two years, my experience, what's happened. So we have open days and then we also have these other days where 200 schools participate and come on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, they get sample lectures from different um, areas I make sure my most innovative lecturers are the people doing those lectures on the day. So, um, and I'm also, every time we have a public face, I, we kind of look like the United Colors of Benetton and that we've got usually equal female to male ratio, um, different backgrounds, different skin colors, so that people know that cybersecurity or IT in general is a diverse field that women and men do, that people from all walks of life can come into with all different kinds of background prior. Now, what I've seen in the last two years is that kids talk, right? Like Mm -hmm. they talk. And so when I go to give these lectures on open day, I will have just as many girls as I will men now in those lecture theaters at the moment. So we go to the high schools at the moment. We do a lot of cybersecurity games with them. So I'm also the cyber ambassador for the New South Wales Cybersecurity uh, Innovation Node. Mm-hmm. And we play games with them. So some of the games are traditional, but what we try to do is develop some games so that it might encourage a student who has no interest in IT to come in and have a, a look. So we had crypto laser tag going for the last year and a bit. Mm-hmm. And we had laser tag toys and students com- competed on teams. They had to come up with strategies in terms of hiding assets and they could only unlock certain assets if they solved behavioral problems, common sense problems, and then a whole bunch of cryptography and mathematical problems. And then what they didn't know is that we'd hacked half the half the toys. Mm-hmm. So they didn't work. And so I don't know, it's just become almost this cult-like following. All the kids are wondering when we're coming back to do crypto laser tag because they love it. And it's really exposed the students to what cybersecurity looks like. It's not all computer science. Mm -hmm. Um, It's what I say, you know, like there are 11,000 new cybersecurity, computer science-based applications and and software that come out every year. And cybercrime and cybersecurity is becoming worse, not better. And it's because cybersecurity actually isn't a computer science problem. That's what people don't realize. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of rhetoric, when they hear it, makes them think, well, what else might be involved with cybersecurity? And one of the strange things is we find quite a few of the girls who come into the program at the moment come because of the behavioral aspects. And quite a few of the boys at the moment don't come into the program because of the behavioral aspect. But here's the funny thing. Our girls are exiting and taking up more computer science type roles and our boys are exiting, taking up more behavioral business roles, which I find fascinating. Mm. So that's that's just after two and a half years of looking at some of the data. And so I think this is just an area that's going to explode if universities do it differently, you know, approach it differently. Mm-hmm. So. Why do you believe that IT as a field has traditionally been a predominantly male field? Because as you were sort of saying, like, look, it, it's it's swapped around now. Like people are going in doing uh, more technical and mathematical type of subjects and they're sort of now changing and that's sort of throwing you off because IT has predominantly been a male-dominated field and I, and I hope to see that that changes. I mean, my opinion is because of Hollywood and how it positions it in terms of the IT guy is always a guy, generally speaking, but I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, but it's beginning not to be in Hollywood and that's what I like. You know, like some of the more recent things that have come out, you certainly have girls behind the hacking and, you know, nothing better than that Dragon Tattoo series for girls hacking, that's for sure. Um, but you're right, the media does play a role in that. But I mean, I've noticed, I mean, the IT crowd is kind of the epitome of like the person that goes into computer science and IT and, you know, not a single girl in the world would follow wanting to be them. 
Mm-hmm. But in more recent television shows, I don't think you get the same perception of, of characters going into to computer science or IT or cybersecurity in general. I think that that has been shifting. And so, it, in fact, that's quite funny you should say that because one of the questions we ask the students is, why did you come to study computer science or cybersecurity? And they'll always name a television show as being mm. really influential in that decision. And so the most influential show at the moment. Mr. So, Robot. Yes, Mr. Robot is the one they all cite. They all love Mr. Robot en masse. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of them have followed some of the, the UK BBC series in cybercrime that have been produced recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mr. Robot is changing opinions. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I found that particularly interesting. Now, of course, once they get to cybersecurity, they quickly realize that they're not going to be on blue and red teams. Most of what they do is purple. Um, and so some of the students thrive in that environment and they get into it and others, you know, well, actually I've yet to have any waffle. They're all, they're all pretty good once they understand what it's about. But yeah, you know what, there's no shortage of work that needs to be done in this area in terms of attracting different types of mindset. Cause I, I've got a daughter who's in year 10 and so she sits scholarship tests and competes on those math. I don't, I don't know what the competition is called, but every high school in Asia puts forth their 10 best students to compete in a math competition. And they do this across Asia and Australia. Mm-hmm. She's at the pointy end of all of that stuff, but she has absolutely zero desire in any way, shape or form to enter, to enter any kind of math or computer science related subject at university. What so is I think exposure to for her, because I can't generalize because a lot of the women in cybersecurity, they love the hard end math. They love the hardcore programming. It's, that's not an issue at all. That's exactly what they like. And they don't see why it should be targeted to boys as opposed to girls. My daughter's different, you know, even with Lego, she preferred the girls Lego to the regular Lego because of the color choices and some of the the, the way you socialize it with. Right. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't she doesn't even though I'm a professor, I'm in the house and she sees what I do. It doesn't pique her interest as much as other subjects. It's not that it doesn't interest her. It just doesn't interest her in the same way as other things do. Mm -hmm. What we're finding with a lot of students coming in is that. We haven't been talking about cybersecurity as a technical degree or a math degree. Certainly you do those things. We talk about it as a problem-solving degree because really that is what you do. Sometimes you're going to solve a problem that involves technology. Sometimes the solution is going to be in training, and sometimes it's going to be a solution that has nothing to do with anything you've trained with. And so when you shift the rhetoric to problem-solving, you attract a different type of person. Mm, no, you're absolutely right. So what do you think, Alana, in, in your opinion of seeing students and working alongside of them and, and doing this for a number of years, where do you believe the industry can help do better to close the gap between students leaving university and then going to work in the field? Because I often get approached by a lot of university students and or even people that ha- have gone through a different route, not through uni, just sort of saying it's really, really hard to get a job because everyone's looking for all these ridiculous qualifications in this experience. But they're like, well, to get the experience, I need to actually get a job first and I've got a degree, but I can't get a job. And so I'm really yeah. keen to hear your take on this. There is such a disconnect. I couldn't agree more with you if you tried. And if you were to interview Professor Jill Slay, um, she will say the same thing, an absolute disconnect because Government keeps saying there's all these jobs in cybersecurity. There are, but they're looking for unicorns, right? The programs, so the big companies all have graduate programs in place that that are designed perfectly for students exiting university to get into those programs, but they're highly competitive and they only take a certain amount of student, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you end up happening is that because they get such a large intake, naturally they have to have a, a selection process that first looks at academic transcripts, which... While they tell a, a story, and, and you know, certainly they are important, in my experience, they rarely tell, tell the story of whether that student's going to be good for them in a consultancy role for the company. Transcripts mm-hmm. are just not the way to evaluate students, um, especially because they need so many practical skills. Um, so the better thing to evaluate from is some of the industry capstones that students work on. And so as soon as graduate programs start to recruit based on some different kind of metrics, I think you'll see that shift in terms of the the students that are getting out there, but not quite getting into those graduate programs. They're the ones who are at a loss to find employment at the moment. And so there needs to be programs that bridge. So that bridge between university and the graduate program, because once your first door is open, usually students don't ever have a problem finding employment after that. Mm. Right. It's just that first door. And then off you go. You either, you know, you make or break yourself going forward. What we're actually finding, right, is industry is actually looking for someone with a lot of project management experience or really highly technical pen testing experience, or they're looking for someone 
who, believe it or not, doesn't have to have particularly amazing technical skills, but the industry feedback I've been receiving is students don't know how to write. Mm. And so they get to these programs and they're doing technical work, but of course they have to write reports that go back to clients. And so there's this fallacy in computer science and math that students don't have to write well and shouldn't be taking English and English extension and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I find that the students who are the best communicators, both oral and written, if they have the same technical competency are the ones that are finding employment, retaining employment and finding themselves promoted. Absolutely right. Yeah. So what I try to do with the program based on that feedback is I have my students writing constant consultancy reports as part of their assessments now. It's it's not enough just to be able to do the the technical aspects. You have to be able to write and describe what you're doing and put yourself in the client's shoes or a user's shoes and in that context. And so, of course, we have, you know, amazing computer science and, you know, math professors across the TAFEs and the universities all throughout Australia. But the students don't have to do enough writing in those programs to be of value to industry from the first day they arrive. They don't have those skills at the moment, quite a few of them. Why do you think that that hasn't been high on their priority list? Like in my experience, I've I've come from a banking background in security and then I sort of did a whole range of other things. But then the gap was technical and security people don't know how to communicate. And that's why I created the firm that I run today because of this very problem that exists. And I feel like a lot of people devalue it in society, which is fundamentally wrong because if you can't lead influence or sell people on security, like you're not going to really get anywhere. So I find that really interesting that not enough universities out there are actually saying, well, communication skills are the most important thing. Yes. Technical is one thing, but you're never going to really progress unless you don't want to, and you just want to stay in a technical role forever. But I always tell people, if you want to become a leader or a manager, you have to know these skills or else you're not going to be able to survive or get promoted. Yeah, exactly. So I can't speak generally for everyone, but I, I run a program in cybersecurity and behavior and they're doing presentations and report writing consistently throughout the first two years. And then in their third year, they're going to industry as um, capstone industry projects or placements. And what's really interesting to see, because they're only in their third year of university, it's just amazing to see the professional development that happens even within two weeks of landing at industry. And so my job is to try and get them as industry ready as possible prior to them going to industry for these placements. And so I feel that's my role. All of the other subjects that they take will get them ready on the technical aspects and other. But there has to be programs at your university that get your students ready to be employed. Is we have to help industry fill that gap. We can't expect industry to constantly do it for us. And I think that's the paradigm and the shift that has to happen at universities and tapes going forward. Is that the feedback you're sort of getting from people in the industry? Yeah. So I, we've, I, we've been very fortunate. We have some absolutely amazing partners who work with us at the moment, um, taking our students on placements and for experiential uh, learning. Um, their feedback consistently. And it's, if it were just one or two, I would take the feedback on board. But the fact that each and every industry player tells us the exact same thing mm-hmm. means that there's, there's just absolutely, you know, it's, it's very black and white. Students need more experience, professional writing, how to deal with clients, how to communicate in presentations. So, I mean, people often laugh, but I think the most important skill you can have exiting university in cybersecurity is knowing how to ask for a $3 million budget with two slides in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to have to be able to explain really quickly what you need, why you need it, why it's important, and why it costs as much money as it does. So there's just so many things that we could do better as an industry. Now, at the same time, Carissa, people like yourself and myself, we're actually in short supply. There aren't enough senior people in cybersecurity at the moment to mentor all of the influx of talent we have coming through the pipeline. And that's a significant problem for us at the moment. There just aren't enough hours in the day to provide the mentorship that all of these students need in order to get them professionally ready. And so that's something as an industry we need to, to work on how we can bridge that gap in a way that's effective. So I'll even give you an example. I'm not going to name the company, but they wanted the students to come through from different backgrounds and do these aptitude testings to see if they, if people from different backgrounds could be good at cybersecurity. Um, what, what ended up there, and if you were, you were meant to be placed out to industry to a full-time role straight away. What ended up happening is that all the best students, were, they were just poached by the company doing the aptitude testing. 
So they gave them the job. And what we found in some instances is some of the students that did the testing were actually more qualified than, than the people who were giving the training. And so there's a real gap at the moment between the senior people in cybersecurity and the junior people coming through. There isn't a really big middle ground. And I don't know if you've found the same um, working with industry. I have. I think it's probably because there is, it's just one end of the spectrum to the next. And the common question I just hear, again, like from students is really, okay, I've got a degree, but how do I get into it? No one's sort of willing to sort of help me out or no one's willing to sort of give me a chance. And then the senior people are just like, well, I'm too busy or I don't have enough time for that or what's in it for me is sort of the, the discussion points that I hear on, on both ends. Well, I'll tell you what, though. I don't have the same problem with international students. They're switched on. They get it. Australians don't. International students come to us when they study. They're the first students to put their hand up to do every hackathon known to man. They're working on the certifications from day one. They just seem to be more switched on. And I wonder what's happening in our high school system that's not telling the same story to our Australian students until, and sometimes it takes, you know, to, to their second or third year before our students get enough confidence to even think about doing their certifications and the hackathons and just putting themselves out there. They seem to lack in confidence and they're not willing to fail. And I can't, I, I try to, to tell people, you only succeed by your willingness to take risk and fail in life. Mm -hmm. And I, we, I, you know, every entrepreneur on the planet will tell you that, success comes usually off the backbone of one or two failures. Absolutely. And what's interesting that you say that I spoke to a guy last week and what he does is rounds up a whole bunch of Australian CEOs in tech, takes them over to India to showcase the technology, the innovation that's actually coming out of there. And one of the things that him and I are talking about is this cultural sort of gap. And one of the things that he raised to me, for example, was in India, if you're working on a proposal, uh, if you didn't finish it then and there that night, and if it was 1, 2 a.m. in the morning, then you knew the next guy was going to have the work. In Australia, he's like, people would probably just go, oh, well, I'm just going to go home now because he said there's not that dog-eat-dog -dog sort of mentality. So when you talk about international students, I think there's just more competition. Like Australia is a really, really small place. Like there's more people uh, in Delhi than there is in Australia. And he also, there's another statistic, he said there are more 11-year-olds in India than there is in Australia combined. Like yeah. that's a very big uh, uh surplus of, of people outside of Australia as well that I think people don't really understand that it is competitive, whereas here people are just like, oh, well, she'll be right. I'll just go home. Yeah, but but even from students coming from other parts of the world, the international students that not from India and where they don't they're not in a doggy dog world um, because they want to stay here. They're way more switched on. They know they have to be better than the Australian to win the job. Mm. So it's just different. Now, what I can say is usually after two years of mentoring the students in Australia, they start to gain the confidence and take risk. And they actually they excel in all the same ways. They just don't typically do it in their first year. Mm. And so we're finding we're having to give them the confidence um, to try new things. It's just it's slightly bizarre, to be honest with you. And so what usually happens if I have a call out for someone to go in, they might not do it. But if I personally phone them up and I say, I want you to do this hackathon, they'll do it. And the last success I had, they won the whole thing across the whole nation. Wow. And so, but the two international students had their hands up right away. And the other students I had to convince to come on and give it a go. They just didn't think they had the skill set to win it or even do well. And I'm like, well, how would you know unless you you, you gave it a go? So, yes, mm. slow. Actually, I would say the changes aren't even slow. Um, but, you know, it takes a lot of effort to change that landscape. I, what I can say is starting to happen is I think the industry partners that I'm working with at the moment, they are so open to doing things differently. They know it requires a lot of work, but we're starting to get that dialogue happening where they're willing to consider different kinds of employment and, and options. One of the most successful programs I have ever envisaged um, is a program that, that ran out of um, Waterloo University in Canada, and it's a co-op program. I am trying to get the Australian mindset into co-op programs. And so co-op programs, Chris, as you may know, you're embedded in industry day one of your first day of university. So you're doing segments where you're at university and you're with industry and you're learning both at the same time. You work towards your certifications all in one go. And the whole program is devised for you the whole way through your university. So instead of taking three years for your bachelor's, it takes you five, but you're embedded with an employer the whole time along that mm -hmm. journey. And so what ends up happening is at the end of the five years, one, you don't have student debt because you've been employed. Two, Industry has the exact person they need the day you graduate. Mm, yeah, of course. 
Of course. And so in Australia, it's mainly done around graduate programs and not co-ops. And I would, it would just be so fascinating if I had one or two companies step up to the plate and say, we're willing to put money in to having a co-op and making it work. And so, I mean, a lot of those technology developments happened out of Waterloo University because of the co-op programs that, that they had going with. Um, they had about six technology partners at the time who took their entire influx of students. So imagine that your entire cohort is embedded in five in five in five companies from from the whole way through, and so that's a shift I'd love to see happen in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting it out there to high school students that well, actually don't I could care two figs if you did math extension or not. What we find in Australia happening this is something you may not know. People who do general maths we're finding at the HSC outperform. At university, the math units than those who have done the advanced. Wow. Once they have to study those things, they've just, someone's advising them not to do those units on the HSC, not because they aren't good at math. They're actually really good at math, but they're not finding out they're particularly good at math. And so they go back to university and math is required for almost every single degree now. That's the other thing people don't realize. There are very few degrees offered at university where you're not doing some sort of coding or math. It's mm-hmm. almost all degrees at the moment. So, yeah. So, you know, we can train someone back, get them into the math mindset, even if they just do their, their general math on the HSCs. What, what we're looking for is people that are creative like yourself, making your own path. Yes. Well, I can't say that what we do as an organization and what I do specifically is in a job description. <laughs> I basically wrote that as I went along. Um, yeah. Well, me too. Go back. I want to go back to the the co-op program. So why do you think they're not sort of doing these types of programs in Australia? And I say this because I, I didn't go to university to study computer science. I actually learned on the job and I found that easier for me. Uh, I think academically, I think I'd actually, I, I, I would say I'd struggle a lot more because I just don't know if I'm wired that way. And maybe I didn't apply myself because it was from school and then I studied fashion and all these types of things. So I am a creative. But then when I got into doing it, when I was working at the bank, like I just, I just absorbed it to the point where I think I was stressing my manager out so much. And she's like, I only just gave you this. Like, how, how do you, how do you know this? I was like, oh, I just absorbed it. I went and Googled a whole bunch of stuff and now I'm doing it. I want the next thing. And I think that that's a very unstructured way of, of learning. Right. But that's how I felt the best at absorbing what's happening in this space. So yeah, Yeah. I I don't have a degree, but I learn a different way. So to me, I think that if they applied this approach, you'd be able to get people learning faster and actually implementing the knowledge right then and there. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that we're looking at doing, and we're universities are starting to do this. So they'll work with an organization and one of the units will be done by that organization. All the students are divided into groups. They get the case study at the beginning and they're given tools. And for the whole course of the semester, all they do is work on this industry problem, competing against each other the whole way through. So that's starting to become more prevalent at universities in Australia, um, what, what I've noticed in the last 10 years, but not but not co-op programs. Um, I think the first company to really invest in a, a significant co-op program in Australia will reap the type of benefit where they come out as, you know, leader in the space, like the investment to run a really good co-op will nearly always get you to the point where you have competitive advantage over others. That's my personal opinion. Um, But I haven't had the time and the breath to go out and find the partner um, that's right for my university to bring that co-op to life. But, you know, maybe one of your listeners will listen and say, hey, maybe that's something I want to introduce with my company. To be honest with you, I mean, someone that speaks to people over the globe in this space, I don't think people even know that that's even a thing that they could do, to be really honest with you. And that comes back to the disconnect between universities and industry, having that open dialogue to really understand, like, what do you guys actually need? I don't think I've never I've never actually heard of this being spoken in all of the conversations that I have at at senior level as well. Well, I look, I spend one full day a week dialoguing with industry. So as a university professor, an entire day each and every week is done pre-COVID with meetings with industry all day Mm -hmm. long. Um. And the other thing I'd like to see, I mean, as more industry teaching on the programs. So I've tried to bring in as many industry people as I can to teach and lecture on the programs. Um, universities in Australia are slow to recognize the importance of industry teaching on programs in the United States. So I'm Canadian, but my knowledge of the U.S. is that in this space, they have so many industry people who lecture on all of their most prominent programs we don't do the same thing necessarily in Australia. And I just don't understand why. 
Wow. Yeah. I was, I was just going to ask why. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand why. So I've had in the last two years, three people from industry join my program teaching and they just changed the landscape of the program and only in positive ways. And so for me, it's about getting the budget and the, you know, my, my supervisors and my leadership team above me to realize how important industry involvement is for certain sectors, right? Like mm. what they haven't realized. So for nursing and medicine, obviously students are embedded in hospitals and learning from day one. Mm. Why, why is that not the case for other disciplines? Like for other disciplines, like it, 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 that same philosophy needs to be there. One of the reasons why it's there for medicine, right, for nurses and doctors going through, is because the perceived harms if students aren't changed properly, what could happen and what the advantages are of having the students in to get that practical experience from day one, right? It, it's, it's there in order to ensure that you have the best kind of graduate afterwards who's, who's able to best serve, you know, the needs of, of their patients. What people haven't realized is that when technology is done wrong, there are significant harms as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's a dialogue we're just starting to see. Mm. Believe, it, believe it or not, Australia probably is the most advanced jurisdiction in the world in recognizing those harms. We have the eSafety Commission, and they are doing amazing work with our researchers throughout Australia in working with companies to pr promote different kinds of safety by designs and app development and everything else. And so... We have this dialogue where it's starting to be recognized, but we don't have the kind of system at the university level that embeds students day one in tech companies where they're, they're learning and co-learning with each other about how to produce secure private software that takes and looks at safety by design, security by design, privacy by design, and looks at the different risks and ethical impacts and outputs you can have from developing technologies, especially mm -hmm. with where we're, we're heading with AI and everything else. And so... I often say, look, there's a lot of work to be done, but starting to think about technology along the same lines as policing and medicine is a shift that we need to start to see happening because it has a massive impact on society with the way things are developed and how they're utilized. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So when, so you said once a week you go and speak to industry, what are some of the discussions that sort of arise when you speak to the, uh, these people every week? I'm just really curious to sort of hear like where their thoughts are at in terms of the industry and, and evolution. So, I mean, the first thing I do, if I'm meeting with a, for, for me, it's about getting the best for my students at Western, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm representing cybersecurity as a whole for the state, but I'm also representing my students, um, at Western. And so for me, I've come from a G8 university where students are given far more opportunities to succeed just by virtue of the fact of their backgrounds. Their backgrounds are not the same as in other universities, often where, you know, the, the student is the first in family to go to university. Their parents have worked hard, you know, whether or not they own a restaurant or doing whatever to get to the point where their kid is going to university. Mm -hmm. And so they, they don't have the same exposures to how professional networks operate. And so when I found at UNSW is honestly, I'd be hard pressed to find a single student when I was there that didn't come from a very privileged background. They all went God. to Sydney Boys High, private schools. The parents are all, you know, they're all they're all professional people. And so they would have grown up with the rhetoric and the whole systems in place their whole life to know what that professional experience looks like. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they would know what a graduate program is before they even get to university. My students don't even know graduate programs exist. They have not gone to those same high schools. They do not have parents in those same professional circumstances. Mm. But I, I, ironically, when industry gives them a chance, what we're hearing from some of our partners is that they're so much more down to earth. And they actually finding that they're able to better communicate with clients. They're just more approachable and they don't they have a different mindset with how they look at life. And so for me, when I get to industry, one, I want to promote my students but two, I want to hear what industry needs. And sometimes, and recently, I've listened to industry and I've told industry, I don't have a student that can do that. And I'll tell them exactly where to go in order to find the student that can do it. So it's about a constant dialogue. And I just wonder if there's not a better way of doing it other than the same work, the same panels that we have all the time about the same things. Like there almost mm. needs to be a working party that has, mm. you know, members from different schools at the university. So Honestly, in my dream scenario, there's a new university of cybersecurity that where every university in New South Wales puts forth the two units that they think they do better than all the other universities. 
And our master's program is formed by students still coming into your program, but they have the option to take those other units that everybody nominates as saying that they do the best of any other university or industry coming to do the same thing. And you build that kind of, I think when you start to build a program with industry, you start to get what you need afterwards because mm. industry becomes invested. They become invested in the program. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I had a, a new industry member come and work with me on one of the units this year. And now that we've taught it for the first time, he's going to redesign the whole unit based on what, what we know the students don't have now for skills. So. But to me, doesn't that feel like a very obvious way of solving this problem? I'm just curious to see, like, from an industry perspective, the lack of in involvement from what I'm hearing from what you're saying. Industry, if you ask them, they're, they're crazy eager to come in and help at our universities. It's actually really never, and at TAFE, it's never been a problem. Industry is crazy eager to come in and help us. The, the other thing that has to happen, um, for example, is that in the field that we have now, we don't rely on our alumni to come back in two years' time and help us with our programs. Uh, that's just something that isn't done across the board at a lot of universities. It is in some. I will say when I was at UNSW, they did this better probably than any place I've ever seen before, mm -hmm. um, getting their best students and their alumni to come back and then lecture on the units, giving the students the first-hand experience when they experienced going out to industry and coming back, and, and they're able to teach it in a way that that student completely relates to because they've just gone through two years of all of the hurdles that they encountered. And they're actually best placed to do the tutorials with the students, to be honest with you. Mm. They, they know the stumbling blocks. And so some universities do that well. But what I've been able to see is most don't. How do you engage with your alumni in order to get them to co-develop your curriculum? Uh, it's something American schools do very well. Yeah, I'm just yeah, I'm just really interested in, in understanding like like why that's not happening. Um, it's just not a model that's that's been done as much here as it has been done elsewhere. Um, I always just I find it fascinating. Like I, I would never move to the U.S. for so many reasons. But there is a reason why tech companies are born out of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they just have a completely different ecosystem from the university structure in through industry, like who lectures on the programs, how they get developed. When you go to. So I'll give you, let's just give you an example. The last conference I went to, USENIX in Silicon Valley, it was sponsored by, I think, Intel, Facebook, and Google. And you had these badges that you, you, you chose yourself. You could just put all of these different stickers that would attach to your badge at the conference. But I'm looking for work is one of them. But all of industry was there. They all had, I'm hiring. And so, and then they would put the different areas that they're hiring with, and then people mm -hmm. would organically discuss it with them. But the amount of first and second year students who were working on industry projects and who were at the conference, it was about a thousand people. They were all getting employment in their second year because wow. they're at conferences presenting their research that, they were, that they're working on and co-developing with industry. So I went over there and I got three job offers. I mean, obviously I didn't take them, but that's mm -hmm. the difference in the ecosystem. So would you say Australia's a fair way off that in terms of the delta? Yeah, it is. It's I mean, okay. we're moving towards what needs to be done, but we aren't there yet. We just don't have the same kind of thing. I would love to have a, a major conference run like that where people came in and there's an I am hiring badge on them. And then you can set up three minute interviews where you do that speed dating thing. Mm hmm. Um, we don't do that at the moment. We do really traditional ways of looking at your academic transcript and this and then that, unless you're super proactive. So I've had a couple students recently who've come to me and I've employed them, both American, who started emailing me while they were studying in the U.S. telling me they're moving to Australia. And they kept open a one and a half year dialogue with me upon arrival. They got here and they just were networking at every single event known to man because they've been taught how to network. Mm. at those universities and they've been taught the importance of networking from day one and so when they got here they were just so valuable they hired them both straight away um they're just so proactive and then when they left um research you know they both had jobs in industry because they were just proactive in finding themselves work and i think i might be a little bit like you carissa it's like i i didn't study computer science above two or three units like a million years ago but I just went and learned. I went online and started studying Python and just got, I, I, I was self-taught. All the technology I know is self-taught. And now that I'm working on so many technology projects with so many amazing people, you know, like I feel like every day is a blessing and a steep learning curve for me at the moment. 
I agree with a lot of your, your thoughts there. I think I was the same, obviously working in a bank, learnt a lot of the stuff then and then moved into more of a consulting role and it was like go out and network. So I did. And I was networking probably four nights a week uh, yeah. because I wanted to go and meet people and go to meetups and get to know different people. And then I started writing a blog and then now I've got this Smartcoms agency versus, and sort of a, a media component on it like the podcast to give awareness about what's actually happening out there because there was this gap in the market. And it was sort of a, an organic journey to where I where I got to. Uh, but again, it was really just about putting myself out there. Like I, I wouldn't have any of the things I do today if I didn't apply myself. And I was 100% the underdog always. Everyone had more experience than me or they went to these yeah. prestigious universities. But I knew yeah. that I could work harder than all of these people. And, th- and I think that that's proven. And so I think that needs to be the nature of how a lot of these students to get ahead and, and get these roles. They do need to put themselves yeah. out there. They do need to apply themselves to say, well, if I work hard, eventually I will get somewhere. My best students are working full time and I've got two students not doing one university program, but two at the same time and they're topping. Wow. And they're working full time. Yeah. These are the hardest working people you'll ever find. So what organization wouldn't want to hire them? Oh, my God. It's really hard to find people that want to work hard. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I know. I teach them. <laughs> um, and so uh, sometimes at the moment I feel we cushion students. So I had one project and they they handed something in and I said, was I not clear on the instructions? Because this is crap. It's like, what have you been doing for 14 days? I said, none of you are going out to placement. You're not ready. If you don't understand what it means to hit the ground and roll, you're not going out to placement. So the next week when I met with them, they had produced a 40 page report. <laughs> oh my but it's this whole sometimes they don't understand that they're meant to just proactively go and learn you know mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that is starting to change i'm finding that i think with half of my students they're crazy proactive at the moment the other half still kind of don't get it but you know you know you can there's an expression i come from a western canada and it's very mountain and rural and it's like you can lead a horse to a trough but you can't make it drink very very true 100 percent so the water's there. They're told what they need to do. I spoon feed them with so many different things and they either go out there and they take advantage of the opportunities given to them or they don't. And it's it's not our fault until they mature and they realize what they have to do. They're not going to get the opportunities that they want. No, you're absolutely right. I think I a saying that I always say, like, you make your bed, you lay in it. Yes, exactly. So for me, it would be interesting to get you to come and do a guest lecture. Well, I really appreciate that. And I think one of the things that you've mentioned in terms of uh, – communicating to clients. And, and I used to write all the board reports for ComBank. And that's when I started to understand the importance of communications and getting the millions of dollars worth of funding was really in the communication and those reports on how we actually engage and spoke with people to, to give us the funding, right? And that's where most people struggle with. They don't know how to do that because they've either been from this technical background, they don't get taught this. And networking, actually, funny you say that. People ask me all the time, how do I network with people? How do I got someone to start talking to them? Yeah, it's like, well, just go up and say hello. <laughs> I know, but it's best. so not a thing. And I So I'll tell you what, at it. I now make my students prove that they've gone to networking events in order to pass the unit. I think that's a great idea. I think a lot of people struggle with it. A lot of people, not just students. I think senior people as well. Like I think people feel socially awkward and they don't know how to engage and or they, I don't know, it's just, it's something that people constantly have always asked me. And I actually used to be a really shy person. But then so did I, was, I, so was I. Well, clearly it's not a thing today for either of us, but I think when you said before about you either apply it or you don't, when I was in school, uh, the the kids that put their hands up, they seemed to be getting further than me and I was incredibly shy. So I just started following them. And then eventually I surpassed them because I was just more sort of aggressive about the opportunities. Yeah. I didn't become aggressive about the opportunities until I was in my last year of law school. It took me that long. And then it's like every single door on the planet opened up. Once I put myself out there and that's what students don't realize. You just, you know, you can't just send a resume in and go, wow, now I'm good and I'm going to roll. It's like, you still have to put yourself out there and be oh, proactive. Consistently. And that's what I say to people. Like success is a continuous loop. Like you don't yeah. just get to a certain level and then you tap out. Like I don't, like since being an entrepreneur the last three years, I think I've worked harder than I've ever worked in my life and I'm oh. constantly doing it. Yes, exactly. Like I probably won't venture out into a startup until I retire. <clears throat> Because I'll leave my kids out of the house in order to to work those kind of hours. I know I'll be working a ninety hour work week if I put in a go for a startup. And that's uh, what people don't understand, right? They just think, oh, it looks easy on the on the surface because they see you preliminary on social media or wherever you're yes. presenting. But like, I had to put a lot of work in to sort of get to those levels. I didn't just get there overnight. And I think that 
there's this fallacy in terms of probably uh, well, I am a millennial myself, but just with the whole social media, like I want it and I want it now. And if I don't have the amazing six figure career straight out the gate, like I'm not achieving. And I think that social media is probably to blame for that because people oh, yeah, prepare like, themselves off it. Yes, exactly. I would say though, probably about a fifth of all students that come into university. And I've noticed this in the last seven years, a fifth of all of those students want to start, they want to work for themselves and open up their own business. So I feel that mentality has changed radically in, in universities. Far more students, because of social media, are realizing they can start up something and and work for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't a thing prior. It's really been in the last seven medias at the advent of social media becoming a thing amongst our youth that people have realized that they can go into business for themselves straight away if they'd like to. Absolutely. And I think now because of COVID, for example, being the catalyst of pushing organizations to working from wherever, people are now starting to think differently and a little bit more openly about how they can utilize yeah. that to their advantage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so. Wow. I, I really, really loved the chat uh, in terms of the knowledge, the insight, even myself personally, a lot of things I didn't actually know that's sort of happening out there. But Alana, if people want to ask you a question that perhaps I didn't ask, how can they go about getting in contact with you? The reality is email is probably the easiest way, to be honest with you. Um, I'm on holidays, so don't bother to email me until after July 13th. And if I find there's a lot of influx coming in, then probably I'll just have a Zoom session where everybody can come in and do an open chat and ask questions. So I've done those recently, and I had with some overseas um, candidates, and we had like 200 people come in, and it was great. To ask questions about what it's like to study in Australia, what kind of things would they do with industry. And so, yeah, it was a lot, actually. Um but there's always opportunities to sort of, you know, I can, if it's something specific about a program, I'm happy to respond straight away. But if it's something more general, I might just wait till there's a few more queries and then I'll just have an online session with everyone. Okay, no problem. Well, we'll uh, definitely put your email in the show notes so people can contact you. Again, thank you so much. I really, really loved our interview today and I'd love to get you on again. Yeah, and I'd love to talk to you again and I'm going to hit you up to come back and do an, uh, an online one hour talking about your experience, your networking, your background and your hard work. I love that about you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, At this point, I'll say goodbye. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.